This is The Takeaway, and I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It's politics time, and I am nerding all the way out. Because Congress is back, and that means C-SPAN is on and popping. On Wednesday, the House Ways and Means Committee met for seven and a half hours to mark up the fiscal 2022 reconciliation bill. Okay, think of this as trying to balance your checkbook with 41 of your cousins. 41 of your very talkative cousins. 41 of your very talkative cousins with strongly held, utterly opposing perspectives. Or, as Arizona Republican David Schweiger put it, One of those moments you come to quite a realization as we listen to each other, um, the left and the right, we live in parallel universes that never actually seem to come close to touching each other. Okay, sure. I mean, the parties disagree. But these lengthy, somewhat unwieldy legislative sessions are comforting. I mean, this is the grinding, messy work of democracy. And unlike post-debate spin room talking points, these congressional conversations reveal meaningful, analytic difference between the members. Here's Gwen Moore, Democrat from Wisconsin. It is puzzling to me that we don't get it, that we don't understand that investments in people is where we increase our economic output. Here's Drew Ferguson, a Republican from Georgia. I think the majority is missing the boat on what on what this is about. This is about jobs. Wait, this is good stuff. I mean, the democratically elected leaders of the world's largest economy debating the core tenets of what contributes to economic growth? Hey, Jay, pass the popcorn. Because it got even better on Thursday when President Biden weighed in with his own understanding of how we build back better. Build back better. In a Thursday afternoon speech, he outlined the plan to raise taxes on the highest income earners in an effort to both strengthen the middle class and boost the economy. This is our moment to deal working people back into the economy. This is our moment to prove the American people that their government works for them, not just for the big corporations and those at the very top. And with a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan that the Senate passed last month and a $3.5 trillion spending package moving out of committee, Democrats just might have the chance to implement their vision for American prosperity, growth and equity. I mean, that is, if they can meet the government funding deadline and win the looming debt ceiling battle. All right, let's see if we can generate a little C-SPAN level heat on this little radio program with Dave Weigel, who is a national reporter covering politics for The Washington Post. David, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you. Brendan Buck is a Republican strategist at Seven Letter and a former aide to Republican speakers of the House, John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Brendan, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. And Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Maya, it's always great to have you here. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So let's start with you, Maya, and with President Biden's speech on what he calls the middle class. What exactly is his plan here? So this is largely seen as almost an extension of his pandemic response, essentially saying that his effort to get COVID under control is nearing its end. And now he's aiming to uh, fix the economy, which is better off now than it was at the start of his presidency, but still um, (laughs) still faces some challenges and the administration does in making sure that it's communicating, that it understands that. And so essentially what he's aiming to do is expand the social safety net um, and pay for that by increasing taxes on the rich, those who are making over $400,000 a year, and also decrease those um, taxes on those who are making less than that. Um, it's a part of a larger part of this administration's economic agenda that they've kind of outlined from the first day of taking office, and also really a part of this larger effort to ensure equity um, across the economy and several different agencies. I guess the biggest question here is whether or not he'll actually be able to pass this, not just given Republican pushback, but also um, a fair amount of fighting within members of his party on the Hill and making sure that all aspects um, of this bill and and really what it would do are included. 
Brendan, I want to come to you on this because th- that um, that sort of wrangling within the Democratic Party is certainly one of the things that um, you know was revealed in the context of, of you know these many hours long C-SPAN conversations. But there was also you know these clear differences um, between Democrats and Republicans in understanding what stokes the economy, what creates jobs, what creates prosperity. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of our I guess fifty year um, uh, experiment right now with lowering taxes as a way to uh, increase economic growth. Sure. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. The Republican vision is lower taxes, less regulation, less government involvement, um, and uh, allowing the, the market to flourish. And Democrats have a very different view, obviously. And I don't think it's that the tax increases they think are necessarily what's going to generate economic growth. It's the spending that those tax increases are, are funding, right? They, they want to dramatically expand the role of government in all kinds of places, education. It, this is one of those things where it's not just a, it, it is a COVID response, but it's also like reimagining what the federal government should do. And they think that is really where you're going to be able to um, both help the economy, but also help their political situation. I think one of the big challenges, politically at least, for, for Democrats right now is, as you laid out, the committees have already passed out all of their pieces of this reconciliation package. And all we're really talking about is the tax increases. I don't think that's the debate the Democrats are hoping to have. Now, I know they believe that taxing the rich is uh, a winning message, but you don't get to make that argument in a vacuum either. Republicans are going to talk about how raising the top rate on individuals is actually the rate that small businesses pay. And you're going to cost jobs and you're going to hurt small businesses um, by doing that. And so there's a lot of counter arguments you can make. And I don't think raising taxes is necessarily what Democrats are hoping will come out of be the takeaway of of what this whole experiment was about. Dave, I'm wondering uh, about Brendan's point there that if you look at the headlines uh, in the next uh, sort of hours after the president spoke, I mean, this idea of tax and spend, right? We're going to raise taxes on one group. We're going to pass big spending packages. I mean, that's a, again, it's sort of a a 30-year-old moniker for the Democratic Party, and it showed right back up again. It is. And it is what the, they ran on in 2020. I mean, that's a lot of the tension in the party right now is between the left, which has been fairly go along to, to get along. I mean, you have statements from members of Congress like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez criticizing the smaller scale of the bills, but not in opposition to the bills themselves. Uh, even with the infrastructure, that you, I'm sure we'll get into this. Uh, the argument is basically over bundling the two together versus pass, passing them separately. It's not the left. It's not just the left. You have instead uh, a couple of Democrats from pretty safe, safe seats who are uh, more moderate that are putting up resistance to pieces of the bill. You don't have, but all of this, and the left, the left has been pointing out, is stuff that Biden ran on. He did. He did run on rise, raising these tax rates in 2018. Democrats captured the House despite. Uh, the, the tax cuts that were passed because they were not that popular. So this is the Democrats do have this this sort of loop they're stuck in where they take the presidency and Congress. Uh, they raised tax. They did it in 1993. And the downstream effects that are predicted aren't as aren't often that bad. In 1993, the Republican message on the Clinton tax increases, was, it was going to kill the economic recovery, which just didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. But they are unpopular. They are very easy to to attack, and you have within the party some moderates who are squeamish about paying for anything. All right, Maya, help us dig in a little bit, because I think it's one thing to look at those bottom lines or top lines, right? How big the bill is, but what is in it? Um, What in that $3.5 trillion spending bill, those priorities, um, is this about holding steady all of those expansions that did happen during COVID, which in certain ways, you know, as a political benefit, you know, it is well said that once something is in place in D.C., it's pretty hard to kind of take it out. Or are these brand new initiatives that would be occurring? Well, it's a little bit of both, but largely uh, the former and expansion of a number of things that we've started to see. One thing that stands out to me um, is this expansion of tax credits for low-income families. One thing that the Biden administration has really touted, of course, is the child tax credit and just how much that's helped low-income families um, in this time during the pandemic. So I think 
really what a number what you hear a number of people talking about now is how this expands the fed this the federal safety net of course paying for it it's got a huge price tag but i think the message that democrats want voters to hear is exactly what they could be getting uh with this message so it's not just you know helping out low-income families it's um you know uh, investing more money into measures to combat climate change um expanding medicare benefits um and a number of other just expanded safety net programs that could actually really help a number of low-income families and, again, tie into um, this administration's larger equity message. I'm thinking about this also through the lens of 2022 and how Democrats are going to take this onto the campaign trail, not just now, but in the future. I think this is the message um, that helps them communicate this to voters, not just what they're doing, but how important it is. Brenda, the the child tax credit um, that Maya mentioned is wildly popular right now. And again, it is it's literally dollars coming into directly into the bank accounts of most American households uh, with children. And yet, as I listened to the debate, the debate was primarily about work requirement, right? And again, it sounded a little 1993 to me, but it was also a, you know, a fair debate. It was a discussion about whether or not a work requirement should be associated with it. Does that seem like the kind of strategy that can actually cross party lines? Well, I, I do have to say a child tax credit is wildly popular, and it's a bipartisan idea. And, and Republicans expanded the child tax credit uh, when they did tax reform, when we did tax reform when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it is a popular program. And um, the work requirements is absolutely one of those fundamental areas where there is a, a difference of opinion on on how government support should. And Republicans have, have long said that if you have too many supports, too much, if you're too generous with, with government programs, there is going to be a disincentive for work. And we actually saw that um, in, in some of the data. I know it, the, the, the degree of it is disputed, but there is a lot of evidence that the, the very generous support in COVID bills have made it really hard for employers to find workers. And you talk to any restaurateur, they'll tell you that they have, they're having trouble getting people to come back, come off, or they were anyway, getting having people come off the sidelines and come back to work. So it, it, it's not a, a specious argument. There are there are there are real world consequences to having a, a government that is so big that the the, the programs make it worth less uh, appealing to people. But a child tax credit, I think, is one of those very few areas we're seeing in the tax debate where there is some bipartisan agreement. That's not where the, the, the rub is going to be. The rub is going to be on individual rates, how you tax corporations. One of the big things that I think even Democrats are going to have trouble. Uh, coming to agreement on is what a corporate tax rate is. The rest of the world is lowering all of their rates, and we are now considering raising ours. And you've got people like Joe Manchin who think already that that is at least the the rate that's being discussed is is too high. And he's saying maybe as high as 25 is as high as he will go. So Democrats have a long way to go. I think what they are learning as they put out three trillion dollars worth of tax increases is that there's a lot of sharp knives in that drawer. And a lot of the things that they have proposed, they're finding that even their own members are a little squeamish about. And they've done, a, I, I would say, a pretty poor job of, of communicating the importance of all these various pieces and are hoping that just sort of a broad message, tax the rich, will sort of be able to muscle their way through. And that's fine. But as long the longer a process like this drags out, and I do think this is probably going to take months before it gets resolved, you're going to start seeing things get thrown overboard. And that $3.5 trillion is going to become $2.5 trillion or $2 trillion. And I think ultimately this ends up being a much smaller bill than what we're currently talking about. Okay, y'all, lightning round here. Dave, are we going to be able to get past this looming government shutdown and the debt limit battle? Democrats have a strange confidence that this is all going to work itself out. I don't think they've been necessarily lucky uh, as much as it takes it takes work and compromise to pass things with slim congressional majorities. They have been getting most of what they want so far. I think a, con- a conflict here is that we've been talking about the cost we've talking about plays politically. I think there's just a inherent strategic, mis- maybe mistaken what Demo- in how Democrats conceive of this. Republicans do not come out and lead with how much one of their spending bills is going to cost. Uh, wherefore, Democrats were for the left. The size of a spending bill is is very attractive. You want to advertise how how big these things are, and and I think that has gotten dominant in the conversation about what they're what they're trying to do, and and that's created some of these political problems. But it's really up to them whether they in, want to in, increase the debt limit in something like in reconciliation, which can be passed with fifty members or not. And I think that 
asking about it now, we have several permutations of this of these arguments between them to go. We have more time where the debate in public is, is not going to be great for them. So these are survivable things. I don't think the party with control, I mean, with the debt limit, some of the confidence looking from the outside of Democrats is, but must be that since the 1970s, when Democrats ran the White House and both branches of Congress, a party in power hasn't had these issues with the debt limit if it controlled the White House and the this is the Congress. You know, we saw in 10 years ago, the problem was that House Republicans used the debt limit for leverage. So I, I see that as a navigable problem for them. But one thing that is going to get mixed up with the, the, the larger political fight and just this demand from the left that something be bigger and spend more and tax the rich more, this worry from Democrats about the constant pressure they're getting because frame the right way those things are unpopular. Okay, Maya, one of the ways that Democrats could have more control in particularly the Senate, um, but certainly if they want to maintain control in the House, is that their voters are going to have to be able to make it to the polls and cast a vote for them. What's going on with voting rights? Yeah, so I think really the argument that you're starting to hear now, particularly from Democrats who are in these states where voting rights are um, particularly fraught and where state held or excuse me, Republican held state legislatures are passing a lot more restrictive uh, voting rights pieces of legislation. Um, there's just a lot more urge, a sense of urgency in getting this passed, not just uh, the message is no longer this is good for democracy coming from Democrats. The message is increasingly becoming we will have a much harder time actually turning out our voters and winning these tough races. And so you ha- you see the introduction of the Freedom to Vote Act um, this week that has a number of the same provisions in the more sweeping um, for the People Act that, as we know, has has essentially um, failed to to pass in the, in the Senate. Um, so you have some of these the provisions like banning, of course, um, partisan gerrymandering, um, making Election Day a holiday, uh, same day voter registration. A number of these things would would protect against uh, the more restrictive provisions in states, again, like Georgia and Texas and others, um, where Democrats are really starting to sound the alarm. But of course, I, the biggest question is whether or not this bill It has enough votes now for a majority um, of Democrats, in fact, almost all Democrats, to to support it in the Senate. But whether or not Republicans will actually get behind this um, is really the big question. And right now, it looks like the answer to that is no. Uh, Brendan, there is an expected pro-Trump protest taking place at the Capitol on Saturday. I'm wondering if you've heard anything from lawmakers about this and maybe particularly from Republicans. Yeah, you know, all I've seen is Republicans trying to distance themselves from it, but those tend to be some of the more responsible Republicans. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a really shameful event that that's taking place. And I would hope that all Republican members of Congress would keep their distance and frankly condemn it. Um, but the reality is you probably have a few who are, are probably going to at least embrace the message that's taking place. I'm thinking of a Paul Gosar from Arizona, for example, for a lot of people in the Republican ecosystem, in the, in the echo chamber, this issue that the people who led the insurrection were storming the Capitol are somehow victims has become a bit of a, a cause celeb among the, the far right. And it, you know, it really comes to show, I think, how far we've come in this effort to rewrite history of what happened on, on January 6th. You know, it plays directly into Trump's victimhood politics. And uh, the president, of course, has been leading the charge on that. He put out a statement this week talking about how those people who stormed the Capitol uh, are, are victims and, and, and patriots. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm hoping that there is less to this event and that it's more hype than actual people show up. But I guess we'll have to keep an eye on it. I'm confident, though, that uh, the Capitol Police will be much more prepared this time around. Dave, there was a recall election in California. What do you think Democrats learned from it? Well, Democrats were very buoyant about the results. I think they may have overlearned from what happened in California. But to, to sum up, there was a recall forced uh, of Governor Gavin Newsom in large part because the judge gave petitioners more time to collect signatures. And I mentioned that because it was never clear that a majority of California wanted to recall the governor. The things that have made him unpopular in conservative media are not necessarily things that are unpopular with you know, this California electorate that is very liberal, especially concentrated in big cities. So they all, you also have in California universal mail voting, which was instituted during the pandemic and included. So it's easy for people. And to that is get M-A-I-L as opposed mail to M-A-L-E. Yes, that yes. Is, 
<laughs> yeah, anyone, uh, any gender can use it, but voting by putting it in the mailbox. And so you had a situation where Democrats who may not have been super enthused to vote were just getting something in the mail. All they needed to do was take a minute and turn it around. So you had some advantages but you, in how Democrats could turn their vote out and the, and the votes they could get. I mean, it's a two-to-one Democratic state. But they did even a little bit better than expected. And what Democrats have decided to take from that is that Gavin Newsom instituted vaccine mandates for teachers and for for healthcare workers. He ran on those in the final month. The momentum moved away from the recall and he won. We've gotten literally almost three million votes left to count, but he won probably by at least 20 points. And so with what the Democrats took from that is we're going to run on vaccine mandates in, in the rest of the country. Easy to say now they're there are states where they're going to compete in 2022 where they're less popular. But in Virginia this year, New Jersey, they're going to run on that. Yeah, uh, that um, rather than think, seeing it as a consensus issue, they see it as a, a winning issue. Gotcha. Maya King is a politics reporter at Politico. Dave Weigel is a national reporter covering politics for The Washington Post. And Brendan Buck is a Republican strategist at Seven Letter. Hope the three of you will all come back and maybe talk mommy, daddy, party, and maybe also your slightly off the rocker uncle party. We should talk about all of those. Thanks, Melissa. <laughs> Thanks for Thank having you. me, Melissa. Haiti is still struggling to recover a month after a major earthquake and storm killed more than 2,000 people. Hundreds are still missing. And even before the quake, Haiti was dealing with a profound political crisis after the president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated in July. This week, that political struggle became even more complex. Port-au-Prince prosecutor Bedford Claude asked a Haitian judge to charge the current prime minister, Ariel Henry, with the assassination of Moïse. Henri fired the prosecutor later the same day. For more, I'm joined by Jacqueline Charles, Caribbean correspondent for the Miami Herald. Welcome back to the show, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. So can you walk us a bit through what happened this week with that chief prosecutor and um, his decision to ask a judge to charge the prime minister with the assassination? Yes. So the chief prosecutor asked a judge, the investigative judge in the case involving the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise, who was killed inside his private residence on the 7th of July. He asked this investigative judge to charge um, current Prime Minister Ariel Henry and to also bar him from leaving the country. The problem is, is that Bedford Claude was already fired when he made this request. Mm -hmm. He had been fired on Monday. Um, at the same time, I've spoken to legal experts who say that even if Bedford Claude had not been fired, he was out of his jurisdiction. Legally, he had no rights to make this request. That once a probe, an investigation has been turned over to a judge similar to a grand jury in the United States, the prosecutor has to stand down. Any additional information or investigation that has to come from that investigative judge, who's also known as uh, an instruction judge. And so Claude cannot mount a parallel investigation. At the same time, under Haitian law, he cannot ask for a minister to be barred from leaving the country or bring any sort of legal mandate or indictment against a minister without the authorization of a president. Currently, there is no president in mm. Haiti. Ariel Henry was tapped by Jovenel Moise days before the president was assassinated. Um, that triggered a power struggle. Um, at the time, it involved the current foreign minister, Claude Joseph, who took over the reins as prime minister. Eventually, Henri was named on July 20th, three days before Jovenel Moïse was, you know, was buried. But I have to tell you that Ariel Henri is not the first and the only political personality that has been pulled into this assassination. Even Claude Joseph, the foreign minister, there were press reports out of the Colombian press, basically citing the Haitian investigation and sources who tried to say that he had something to do with the president's killing. I remember in July, he called a press conference in order to address those basically saying that they were lies. And we've also seen other personalities as well as prominent pastors who's also had um, arrest warrants issued with them because there was some alleged contact between them and any number of, you know, some of these key suspects. 
What has this level of um, conflict and, and just sort of the, the roiling uh, lack of, of clarity about what happened in the context of this assassination, what is that meaning politically for, um, for, the, for Haiti? Well, it carries, you know, so many implications. The first, of course, is whether or not we're ever going to find out who truly were the masterminds um, behind the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Forty-four people are currently in custody. A judge now has the case. He's going to start probing further. But will we truly know who paid for this and why? Who fired that fatal shot? Um, we know that there are 18 Colombians, you know, on the slate, as well as two Haitian Americans. There's a third Haitian American who's been implicated, a doctor. But all of them are saying, hey, I didn't do it. So when you see that this investigation is taking on a political bent, it really raises questions about, you know, the integrity of the investigation itself and whether or not there truly is a desire to get down to the bottom of it. Then the when you see this whole political disarray that's taking place in Haiti, you know, it is sad because the reality is this is a country that is struggling to recover from a deadly 7.2 earthquake along its southern peninsula. I was there. There are towns that are almost completely destroyed. People are still sleeping in the streets. Um, over 60% of people in those regions do not have access to potable water. Yesterday, the head of the Pan American Health Organization acknowledged Knowledge that there are still some communities that they have not been able to access and that the humanitarian response itself, you know, has been hampered by the ongoing saga with armed gangs blocking the road, the major road between the capital, Port-au-Prince, and the rest of the southern region, which is in desperate need of assistance. So you have that happening. And then if you were in Port-au-Prince, you have to deal with the huge issue of armed gangs and insecurity. And we have to remember we also have a COVID epidemic. You know, Pan American Health Organization yesterday says less than 1% of Haiti's 11.5 million citizens have actually been vaccinated. You know, this is a country, thank God, it hasn't had the number of cases that we've seen elsewhere in the United States or even across the border in the Dominican Republic. But, you know, people don't necessarily believe in vaccines or traditional medicine. But if you're a government, you need to go out and be able to convince people, right, that they should vaccinate themselves, especially now since the Delta variant and the Mu have both been confirmed in Haiti. So, yes, the chaos, the political play, uh, all of this is not, you know, is not helping. And let me just say, that all of this happened in terms of Bedford Claude and, you know, trying to charge the prime minister and trying to bar him from leaving the country. The timing of all of this is very interesting. Bedford Claude, as the chief prosecutor, has had in his possession for several weeks a the police investigation. Once the police turn, you know, everything over to an investigative judge. So if there were phone calls between one of the key suspects and Prime Minister Ariel Henry, he could have moved weeks ago. But instead, he did it when he did it. And what was happening around that time? We have to remember that at this moment, the prime minister himself was starting to make inroads, seeking a global political agreement with members of the opposition, some of the very same members of the opposition who had basically been protesting against the late president, who had been seeking his removal from office. And what you had then was that loyalists to President Jovenel Moïse, they were going on radio, they were going on social media, they were attacking the current prime minister. And so feeling threatened that all of a sudden they're either going to be pushed aside or tossed aside, we see them issue this strike. In addition to Bedford Claude, the prime minister has also fired the minister of justice, who was theoretically Claude's boss and would have had to say, okay, yes, you can do this. And then he also fired a key advisor to the late president, who was the head of the Council of Ministers. What role does the international community play or need to be playing right now? You know, the international community led by the United States has says, listen, we're hearing you. you guys say that you want Haitian solutions to Haitian challenges. And today, this is a Haitian challenge. And so we're going to allow you to have your Haitian solution. Because the reality is this, is that there is no formula. There's no constitutional answer for, you know, a president is killed. Uh, there is no parliament. There are only 10 senators that are left. The head of the Supreme Court died from COVID weeks prior. Um 
any all of the institutions that may have stepped in, they are basically non-existent. So there is no formula in the Haitian constitution that says, here's what needs to happen. Here are the next steps. So, you know, the international community basically saying, listen, this country needs to have some semblance of stability. Um, it needs to be working towards elections. There is an acknowledgement on the Biden administration that Haiti could not go to election this year, despite the fact that they were pushing this as well as the Trump administration. I mean, there is a serious um, mm. security issue with armed gangs. I mean, there are people in their homes who cannot leave. There were 16,000 plus individuals who were forcefully displaced from their home starting in June because of armed gang clashes. There is, you know, Doctors Without Borders, which works in war-torn countries, was forced to shut down their hospital in one of these communities because of armed gangs. So that you know, that, so when you say elections, elections, how how are people going to go vote? So there's a recognition on a part of the international community for that. But in order for you to start to tackle that, as well as the other challenges, the humanitarian crisis, the economic, the, the social crisis, you basically need people to play nice. <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline Charles is the Caribbean correspondent for the Miami Herald. And I feel like we need another hour to even start to scratch the surface of the level of complexity. Please tell me you'll come back and talk Haiti with us again very soon. Definitely, I will. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And for the rest of the hour, we're going to talk about and with Black Republicans. Now, we want to get past the simple headlines and the noisy nonsense and really contend with the complicated position of being both Black and Republican. We start by talking with Leah Wright-Rigor, historian and author of the book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican. In her book, Leah writes about how Black Republicans are often disparaged as racially inauthentic or traitorous. And we asked her to reflect on the reasons why, both fair and unfair. The biggest reason, the biggest reason for the distrust between Black people and Black Republicans is because of Black Republicans' political affiliation. So by and large, the way that we can understand Black Republicans, just from a really basic perspective, is that they are racial minorities in their political party, and they are political minorities within their racial community. And that political minority within their racial community is really, really important because African-Americans, Black people, Black voters as a whole, do not trust the Republican Party. Historically, they have not trusted the Republican Party since really the 1960s, 1964 political election. And that's because, because through various incidents, through policies, through statements, rhetoric, what have you, so very real, but also kind of, I think, um, rhetorical reasons, Black people have learned that Republicans are not trustworthy. They've also watched and protested quite loudly when Republicans have taken anti-civil rights views. So those are, I think, the very real reasons and the very valid reasons that African-Americans would be suspicious of Black Republicans, right? There are all of these kind of sayings where Black people will say things like, being a Black Republican makes no sense, right? It's, it's akin to the leopards ate my face kind of, kind of a thing. But essentially, it doesn't make sense because of the Republicans' very real anti-civil rights position. So where Republicans, particularly in the last 40 years, have taken positions that have put them at odds with whether it be a pro-Black agenda, whether it be a pro-civil rights agenda, but where Republicans have taken very real positions against those spaces in ways that are detrimental to Black voters. Now, I think some of the way that this might be unfair, some of the, the unfair rationale is that amongst Black people, amongst Black political participants, right, we know that Black people have extremely nuanced, extremely diverse, extremely kind of wide variable views. They run the gamut of the political and ideological spectrum. And so I think when we then look at Black Republicans and we say, well, that doesn't make any sense for them to politically affiliate with the Republican Party. That's actually, I think, an unfair position because we know that ideologically there are Black people 
that hold positions that line up almost perfectly with what we would consider either conservatism or the conservatism that is espoused by the, by the Republican Party past and present. So the very thing, right, the association with the institution of the Republican Party is what makes people suspicious of Black Republicans, rightfully so. But at the same time, we know that there are a lot of Black people within the community that hold these very same positions, although they don't publicly affiliate with the institution of the GOP. We asked Leah whether Black Republicans tend to see themselves as loyal partisans or as outsiders within, seeking to challenge the party establishment. It's a little bit more complicated than, than a binary would make it seem. That in fact, you can find Black Republicans who are deeply ideological across all of the boundaries of the contemporary Republican Party. So anti-communist, anti-abortion rights, or some of them say, we'll say pro-life, uh, deeply religious, pro-capitalist sentiment, right? So we find all of these check marks that line up with the contemporary Republican Party in some respects. Um, and that's what I would call an ideological or dogmatic Black Republican. But we also find a number of Black Republicans who work within the Republican Party or work with the Republican Party or affiliate as Republicans who see themselves as outsiders whose job is essentially to push the Republican Party in the direction that they need it to go into. And so there are a number of scholars who work on this subject matter. I think uh, Corey Fields is an example of someone who's doing really, who has done really interesting work on this topic. These are what Corey would define as race conscious Black Republicans, in that it really does matter, this idea of what the Black community thinks of what they need, what they want, this kind of idea of an agenda that it incorporates civil rights and African-American and Black needs is central to their understanding of what their, what their role is in the Republican Party. So even though they might be ideologically in sync with the Republican Party on a number of issues, and that you do have to be in sync with them uh, on a number of issues in order to, you know, take that step of affiliating, we still see that race consciousness um, and advocating for racial civil rights and things of that nature is still central to their argument of how they work within the party. And then, of course, there are Black Republicans who we might say are completely just, they're opportunists. The kind of, I think, what you might call the shine that you get by affiliating with the Republican Party, the, the race, right, to, to um, achieve that shine is much um, shorter than the race to achieve preeminence or prominence within the Democratic Party. And that's just simply a numbers issue. There are far fewer Black people within the Republican Party than there are Black people in the Democratic Party. So the latter by which you gain perhaps influence, attention, right, um, shine, is, is much, much shorter than the latter that Black people that are working within the Democratic Party have to go through. Um, and so for some people, I think this kind of opportunism has certainly has different dimensions. I think we can turn on the news, you can turn on cultural, you know, um, cultural elements of television, and we can see that there. But then the, the thing that I want to point out here too, though, is that one of the reasons that is very difficult to see kind of this nuanced or complicated view of the Repu of Black Republicans or Black people in the Republican Party right now is that the party doesn't, re, uh, doesn't reward dissent. It doesn't reward criticism. So Black Republicans that critique the Republican Party, particularly now, but historically, this has always been true, will never get the same kind of platform right, as Black Republicans that stand firm with whatever the party standard bearer says. This week, California Governor Gavin Newsom easily defeated a recall challenge. That doesn't mean his main competitor, conservative talk radio host Larry Elder, plans to recede into the California sunset. Elder didn't win, but he emerged as the top choice of pro-recall voters. And let's just say, some of us here at The Takeaway suspect he might be looking for an apartment in Iowa, if you know what I mean. Now, Elder is a member of a small group, 
a group often maligned and misunderstood, a group with some pretty outrageous characters taking up a lot of public space. No, not conservative talk radio hosts, contemporary black Republicans. Let's start with a little history. After the end of the Civil War, virtually all black men identified with the Republican Party. This was the party of Lincoln and of Reconstruction. And when 19th century black men cast their first ballots and held their first offices in this country, it was in a Republican party that had defeated Dixie. Now had black Southerners wanted to be Democrats, they would have found it impossible because they were banned from participating in the party. So this is the legacy that former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice points to when she talks about growing up in Alabama in a black Republican household. Here she is talking with MSNBC's Al Sharpton back in 2013. Then my father, big, tall, dark-skinned man, rather imposing, uh, the poll tester said to him, pointing to a jar about this high, how many beans are in this jar? Now, when my dad couldn't answer, of course, he failed the poll test. So he was very despondent about this, Went was around his church. This elder of his, a man uh, who named Frank Hunter, said, Reverend, don't you worry about it. I'm going to tell you how you get registered to vote. He said, we're going to go down, back down there. He said, now there's a clerk down there, and she's actually a Republican. And if you'll just say you're a Republican, she'll register you because she wants to get as many Republicans as she can. And so he went down. He said it was a Republican. She registered him. And uh, he stayed true to his word. And he was a Republican the rest of his life. But today's Democrats and Republicans are not the same as the 19th century version. Beginning with FDR's New Deal in the 1930s, Black people in the urban centers of the Northeast and Midwest began to move into the Democratic column. The partisan move was solidified in 1965 when Southern Democrat President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. And that was when Black folks re-entered the electorate after 80 years of Jim Crow disenfranchisement. And they did so primarily as Democrats. Here's Martin Luther King in 1965. I congratulated the president for the passage of the new voting bill, knowing that he had worked so passionately and unrelentingly uh, for this bill and made it very clear to him uh, that this would uh, be a great step forward in removing all of the remaining obstacles to the right to vote. Still, black people are not a monolith. In most presidential elections for the past 50 years, the Republican candidate has earned between 8 and 12 percent of the African-American vote. The first black secretary of state was Republican Colin Powell. The second was Republican Condi Rice. The first black lieutenant governor of Maryland was Republican Michael Steele. First black U.S. Senator of South Carolina is Republican Tim Scott. And the first black person to represent Utah in the House of Representatives was Republican Mia Love. Love them or hate them, black Republicans are part of this story of America. And here with more are Joe Watkins, host of State of Independence and former aide to President George H.W. Bush. Welcome, Joe. Hey, how are you, Melissa? I'm great. And also Ron Christie, former special assistant to President George W. Bush and a Republican strategist. Welcome, Ron. Always a pleasure, Melissa. So, um, Joe, are you feeling like um, like a museum object? I just did a whole lot of analysis of a category um, to which you belong, being a black Republican. You know, well, well, you know, I'm I'm so old, Melissa, that uh, I actually joined the Republican Party because of uh, what they were doing in the 1940s and 50s uh, for civil rights, and 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 all those Republican senators were the people that supported Lyndon Johnson to get the Civil Rights Act uh, approved in 19, 1964, and then in voting rights in '65, and and fair housing after that, and 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 that's that's kind of what prompted me to join the Republican Party in the 1970s uh, as a as a young person. Uh, was that history. Uh, but uh, all Republicans are not the same, of course, we know that, just as all Democrats are not the same. So it's an interesting point, Joe, and, and, and Ron, I, I think to that same point, in this moment, um, for whatever reasons you joined the Republican Party, do, are you feeling like it's the same Republican Party? Well, I would say in the era of Trump that we have just left, um, many Republicans felt that they were conservatives without a party. In other words, it became the personification of Trump rather than the personification of the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party that Joe and I joined stood for a strong national defense, stood for values, stood for the civil rights issue in the United States being the value of an education. 
And so I don't feel alienated post-Trump with the Republican Party, but certainly the Republicans have a lot of rebuilding to do if they want to get the trust and respect of voters, regardless of their race, uh, to join our ranks. So, so, Ron, let me just push on that a little bit. Given that Larry Elder, um, you know, was sort of the standard bearer in the California moment in this um, recall, are we in the post-Trump era yet or still like the residual Trump era? I think the residual Trump era. And one thing, Melissa, your, your viewers your listeners have to understand is that the question was, shall the governor be recalled? Yes or no? If yes, then who should the candidate be? And much in the media has been uh, out there saying, oh, well, it's, it's Larry Elder against Governor Newsom. No, it's shall the governor be recalled? And it just so happens that Larry Elder uh, was the one who had the most by way of percentage of votes behind him. But this isn't a Larry Elder representing all black Republicans. This is Larry Elder trying to uh, unseat a unpopular governor in my beloved home state. Right. And and of course, Joe, there, there, there wasn't a Republican primary, you know, Republican voters didn't choose, um, you know, elder in sort of a you know set of debates and that kind of thing. But let me ask you the same question about whether we're in the post Trump era yet um, and whether or not you think black Republicans might be part of moving uh, uh, the party that you joined back into that party. Uh, I think Ron uh, Christie had it uh, right on point. Uh, it's, it's still res- residual, I would say. And and, uh, and and I think it's yet unseen as to what we'll do going forward, what black Republicans will do, how they'll vote, uh, how many blacks will be elected to House seats or U.S. Senate seats or governor seats in the, in the coming uh, cycle. Ron, I want to come to you on sort of the what happened with Clarence Thomas um, after his speech on Thursday and it was reported on, um, because it's, it's fascinating to me to see not only a critique ideologically, which I think is fair. One, one can have those disagreements, but also a racial critique, a critique that he does not represent black people and is basically traitorous or inauthentic. It always astounds me, Melissa, when you hear people say Clarence Thomas as opposed to Associate Justice Thomas, who, as you pointed out, is the longest serving uh, justice in the Supreme Court right now. He doesn't represent a race. He represents an ideology and a return to contextualism and The idea that people would attack him because of his race on Twitter shows you how far we have to come to achieve Dr. King's dream of basing people on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. He is conservative. Uh, Joe and I, my friend, are conservative. But we look at what the Constitution says based uh, on the law and facts rather than how one should vote based on the color of their skin. So, um, Joe, I, I want to respond to Ron here, because I know that sometimes what happens when we hear that language, especially with the deployment of King, is that you can, you know, a, a lot of times progressives, I'm one of them, will um, will bristle a bit and say, hey, yeah, I hear you. But he, you know, Dr. King said that about content of their character while trying to change laws and policy um, and, and actually trying to create more protective capacity um, for black folks who hadn't ever been judged that way to actually sort of move through the the world and into the American dream. Is there, um, I'm wondering how you respond to that. I'm old enough to, to, to be able to say that I was friendly. I got to be friendly in his later years with Dr. King's father and uh, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., who uh, for the most part was Republican for, for much of his life, uh, voted with the Republican Party for much of his life. Uh, and uh, Dr. King Jr. was somebody who worked with, uh, with elected officials uh, without regard to political party to, to, to move forward the agenda, uh, to level the playing field for, for, for black people in America. And uh, so he wasn't a, a partisan politician as such. He was just trying to get things done. Uh, and uh, of course, in, in today's world, especially with so many of his lieutenants, uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, Andrew Young, uh, becoming uh, more partisan and, and being involved with the Democratic Party, uh, King's legacy has now tilted uh, to make him into a Democrat. But the end of the day, Martin King was was about uh, the, the cause of black people, and he was nonpartisan, and, and he was happy to work with Republicans like those Republicans that got the civil rights bill passed and the voting rights bill passed, as well as Democrats. Ron, I'm wondering if there is sort of what's the basis on which one could have a, an actual fair argument um, 
talking about public policies and their um, whether or not they are generally good or generally bad for Black communities. So I feel like we could, you know, we could roll out empirical data around, you know, economic growth under Democratic presidents versus Republican presidents, or, um, you know, we can look at sort of family structures, whatever those structures are, or whatever those measures are. What do you think is the is the appropriate basis for having that argument rather than like a racial authenticity argument? You know, I always approach these uh, types of discussions with facts and evidence. And the fact is, whether you liked Donald Trump or not, you can look uh, back to the year that I was born in 1969, and you've never seen Black unemployment as low as it was uh, during his administration, not uh, George W. Bush or H.W. Bush or Barack Obama, but Donald Trump. Why is that? How is that? Could it have to be something along the lines that we reduced taxes, that we reduced regulatory burdens on people and allowed people to earn more and decide how they wanted to spend money as opposed to how government wanted to dictate to them how their money should be spent. And it's it's things like this, Melissa, that I think that move beyond race. And you talk strictly about, again, facts and evidence. And the fact is that Republicans believe that people should have more personal freedom and the opportunity to use that wealth. And Democrats, by and large, believe that the government should dictate how that should be spent. So that's not a racial argument. That is a ideological one that often gets lost in these racial discussions. So Trump is a difficult one, though, I, or President Trump is a, is a difficult one, though, I want to suggest, because on the one hand, you know, I, you know, I'd be I'd be happy to like have that argument and not just an argument, but actually, I agree that the libertarian impulse, the impulse towards freedom, um, the imp- the impulse towards actually sort of throwing the government off a little bit is one that's very strong within black communities. But then there's also the racial language and the reality of increased hate crimes under President Trump. So I don't know that I want to trade off more jobs and higher pay for feeling insecure or living in a world that feels like um, it is rhetorically attacking me. Joe, how do how can we hold accountable those kinds of racist aspects at the same time having, um, a, you know, a reasonable discourse about the economic questions? Well, well, there, there needs to be. I think it's it's useful to have a discourse on on how we move forward. I mean, uh, obviously, one of the issues was is has to do with policing, and and, and I, I uh, was very open about this on on CNBC. I, I talked about the need for police reform and how it can be done, uh, and and conservative uh, think tanks as well as some non conservative think tanks have spoken very eloquently about how you can reform, uh, uh, how there can be police reform. Uh, so that people of color aren't aren't uh, unfairly targeted, uh, and, and and this can be done. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I just uh, it, it's very easy to assign um, what's happening to a president. You know what what's happening in the society to a president, and um, I, I think it's it's just a bigger conversation. I think that it has to do with all the people that we elect to office. Uh, in a perfect world, uh, we would have term limits, as far as I'm concerned, so that mm. nobody would be a lifelong politician. People would just serve for a few years and then go back to doing whatever it is they do. Uh, but um, at the end of the day, all of our elected officials, our, our members of Congress, our senators need to engage in a conversation uh, about how we how we move this country forward and, and, and over and above uh, the, the, the issue of, of, uh, of, of, of race. Look at that. Joe Watkins and I have a meaningful agreement on a public policy. I'm a pretty big fan (laughs) of term limits myself. As always, I so appreciate conversations with both of you, and I hope you'll come back and continue to have more. Ron Christie and Joe Watkins, thank you both for joining us. Great to be with you. That's all the politics we have for y'all today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Big shout out to the team who makes this audio extravaganza every single day of the week with me. Lee Hill is our executive producer, and our senior producers this week were Ethan Oberman and Meg Dalton. Our producers are Shanta Covington, Katerina Barton, and Deborah Goldstein. Zachary Bynum is our digital editor. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer and sound designer. And Jay Cowett is our director. Jackie Martin is our line producer, and David Gable is our executive assistant. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Takeaway.